Hello. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Breaking Maker News. That's right. Welcome to the Modern Maker Podcast. <laughs> I'm Mike Montgomery here with my co-anchor Chris Salamoni. Hey, welcome to the Modern Maker Podcast. It's a new intro. We're back, yeah, and with us our weatherman Ben Ueda from Homemade Modern. What's up? It's hot. Happy to be back. After a long week, we're back with the first edition of Maker News on the Modern Maker Podcast. What's the news, Chris? Do you have any idea? I think I do have an idea. Well, if you're looking at the same teleprompter I am, then it says, Binueta just hit 1 million followers, subscribers, I should say, subscribers. on YouTube. Woo! You some that? That's a live audience right there, people. <laughs> live audience of two. Thank you, thank you. How does it feel? Is everything different? Not really, but it's, it feels nice. It, it, you know what it is? When it's easier to send the sort of media kit response to people to just say... Saying over a million? Right. So it's really awkward where, where people say, oh, send us sort of your social media stats. And you're saying, oh, we have over 990,000 fo- uh, subscribers on YouTube. It just sounds awkward. It's just nice and easy to sort of round up to saying over a million. So, yeah, now you can almost just like keep it there until 1.5 or something. Yeah, right. So that's that's the most noticeable difference. But I think for a while now, it, it doesn't seem like view numbers are completely correlated to subscriber numbers. So no, there's no real big, you know, lifestyle change or anything like that. And most brands now are looking at average views for videos and not total subscriber numbers. So it changes very little, but it's still something that more indicates, I think, longevity than crazy performance. It means that I've been doing it for like over five years. Yeah. So I think the the, the only thing that really made me think was just about the, the milestone made me think about just how long I've been doing it and how much things have changed since the beginning and how crappy some of my first project <laughs> projects were. So it, it was reflective. It didn't mean something that way, but I think it meant more to me in terms of just the, the longevity of this pursuit rather than, wow, that's a big number. Yay, that changes everything. Right. Well, either way, it is an awesome milestone. That's really, it's pretty awesome. So congratulations. I'm pumped for yeah, you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's really cool. Is it... Hitting milestones left and right. He was 40 last time we did a podcast. That's right. What's he going to do next week? I don't know, but I feel like probably what's more exciting than hitting a million subscribers, or at least in the moment, is the fact that you finally got the production crew out to the tiny house. A little bit of that like mad dash to get all that finished. Seems like it might be kind of done, right? Yes. So the house isn't complete. We do not have a certificate of occupancy. So once you have a building permit... You have a series of inspections where the inspector comes out and checks the progress of the building. Uh, the house looks pretty much done, and we, it was done enough for having the photo and video crew out there. But it, we do not have a certificate of occupancy yet, and there's still quite a bit more work that needs to be done. So there's still a whole other container that needs to be built out. We need, still need to anchor the, the containers to the foundation. But it was camera-ready enough to get the... Home Depot hired professional production crews to come out. And that was actually, it was stressful because that set a a set in stone deadline that I had to hit. And it was brutal working up to that. And I apologize. That's why uh, we didn't do the podcast last week is it's kind of a crazy week for everyone. Mike was traveling. I was hitting that deadline. 
I was being lazy. Chris was just holding <laughs> down his like very chill suburban dad life. Yeah, I was eating chocolate on the couch. Nice. Yeah. All week. <laughs> Bonbons. <laughs> uh, so it it was it was pretty miserable for the two weeks going up to it. You know, twelve to fifteen hours a day for probably like at least like fifteen to twenty days in a row. So there's still a lot of work to be done. And now I'm trying to catch up on emails and things like that that I neglected during this sort of mad dash. But yeah, it was it was cool to, to hit it and then sort of sit back. And I still had to be on set every day during the four days that the crew was out here shooting. But it was nice because the pressure was on them and I could sort of learn about some of their production things. So it was a crew of about 30 to 40 people. Um, they were doing some really cool stuff with with 360 cameras. And they also had some special effects people come out. Whoa. One of the things they wanted to do was to do like a fly through the house. But the house is like really small. So at first they were thinking about using a drone to actually fly through and then move the camera around. They decided it was a little bit too tight. So they used a gimbal with a 360 camera. And the 360 camera captures all the way around. And then they can edit a regular video from that raw 360 footage. And they can put their own navigational spin on it. I had no idea that 360 cameras like were that good now. Yeah. The only experience I really had with them was kind of, I guess, probably two years ago, whenever they really started getting popular. And they Mm -hmm. were cool as a novelty at the time. But since then, I don't know, have they just gotten a lot better? Because I remember the footage being very kind of fisheye looking whenever you were navigating around. These people are pros, so they're they're using some some top top shelf shit. But it was also cool just seeing how they were planning out the transition. So they used the shower, the water from the shower as a transition. So they needed to sort of reset the gimbal that was being handheld and carried. And they have a waterproof cover on the 360 camera and they carry it into the shower. So the splatter of the water is then lets them sort of reset. And then they set up for the next shot from the same position with the water splattering on the camera. That's pretty cool. Hmm. I mean, what were you doing most of the time? Were you kind of off to the side while they were filming? There's this thing called craft services, which is basically Uh. like a food truck. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, you couldn't do too much. Your makeup would have started to run, right? Exactly. So (laughs) I was snacking. Uh, It was also just a lot of like fixing last minute things or there's additional products from some of the sponsors that needed to be placed or that weren't quite visible the way I had put them in. So there's there's a lot of sort of errand running, but uh, not continuous work. The other cool thing that they did is that they... In this sort of fly through the thing, they wanted the drawers for the cabinets because Thomasville is one of the sponsors. They wanted them to open up. So they brought in a special effects guy who's awesome. And I'm going to try to do some collabs with him in the future. This guy has done the craziest stuff because he's worked on everything from movies to Lady Gaga videos to commercials. And he has this like, you know, 40,000 square foot workshop where he can build just about anything. He's like, you know, like an Adam Savage type person, but probably actually like a lot more legit in the industry so he put these pneumatic devices shots fired by the way (laughs) well that was kind of more what the that that was how he was introduced to me um that's what his business card says i was about to say yeah that's how he introduced himself i'm basically like adam savage but more legit yeah so you know he built these pneumatic devices that would open the drawers automatically so he he created this whole control control panel where he could just you know hit these different buttons and all the different drawers would open like invisibly so that was pretty cool with with all these like and had the cool kind of like like kind of piston robotic sound to it uh as well yeah 
So that was fun. Met some cool people. And what's interesting in that in that industry is that a lot of people are sort of freelancers, and then a production company brings them all together. So I actually made a lot of good connections with people in the LA area that uh, we could end up working with, um, which is sweet. Good to know. So he he taught me. This guy taught me a lot about optical glass, and it's like he's like, oh yeah. He was showing me this commercial he did for Gatorade where he made a clear basketball court where you could look up from underneath. And it was like to catch like the, you know, the, those like sweat and like Gatorade dripping down. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, yeah, this is like optical glass. So it was a really cool resource just to, you know, compare ideas with. And he was really intrigued by by what we all do. And, yeah, so it was fun to just talk shop on the production side with a, with a whole bunch of people that are really good at what they do. I got a question. Right on. So... You know, when you're planning out a regular, just say a smaller scale furniture project, usually have like a pretty decent idea of what it's going to end up looking like going into it. How close would you say that the tiny house has come to looking like whatever you had in your head before you started building it? Um, I'd say it's like 85 to 90 percent. Okay, so it's still mostly there. It's just like some of the finishing stuff is different. or Yeah, I knew there was going to be a lot of improvisation, uh, particularly around how I was going to frame out the windows and do that. I had a few different ideas, and I actually did it. I implemented two or three different ways of framing them out. So I wasn't sure about those details, but in terms of general layout, floor finishes, things like that, I kind of knew you know the way it was going to go out. Um, the the thing that kind of came out good, which was a total last minute thing, is that I've always wanted to do that detail where you take hexagon tile and you cut that to fit into wood. And I was really worried that that was going to get cut out at the last minute because I was just running out of time. And literally the night before uh, or two nights before, I pretty much pulled an all nighter. I was up to like two or three in the morning uh, and then had to get up again at six. And I was using a the Ryobi multi-tool, which is that little oscillating thing that can, which, it, which I think we might underuse, Mike, relative to, it, it can do a lot. It, you can cut straight down into the middle of a board. You can do a plunge cut that's like really nice and clean mm-hmm. and straight. Yeah, I used it quite a bit whenever I was doing my TV lift cabinet that I made out of those metal lockers. It was really the only thing that I could do to get into the corner of those cabinets to get that sheet metal cut so I could cut it in half. So it's like a heavy-duty Dremel kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. The hardest part, or the part I wasn't sure about how to do, was how to actually scribe the lines from the tile to to the, to the wood. Um, but what I had to do was actually take the extra pieces of tile, and so we, we thin-set and glued the tile down first. Then I took another set of tile and sort of mirrored or copied that pattern, and then I overlaid that second set of tile onto the pieces of the wood floor, traced it, and then once I had it traced, it was just you know about an hour and a half of cutting time with that multi tool, which which isn't that bad. It was just you know put on a put on a podcast and, and and go to work. But it was surprising how precise you could just cut freehand with no guide or anything like that, just following the pencil lines with that with that multi-tool and just a straight blade so i've always heard the multi-tool is the angle grinder of woodworking (laughs) (laughs) yeah it makes sense so that was it was a detail i've had my eye on for a really long time i was kind of afraid it was going to get cut out due to time so i'm glad i sort of stayed up and and gave it a shot and and it worked out well and you know the the response to that detail has been pretty pretty great people seem to 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 like it a lot on instagram given the sort of engagement and comments and 
and stuff like that. So, yeah, it mostly came out the way the way I was I was hoping. Uh, I think the only sort of thing that it's really off is the budget. I've spent probably twice as much money as I was sort of hoping to. Oh wow! Yeah. And a lot of that was on labor to kind of rush. I was originally planning on doing a lot more of it myself, but when mm-hmm. it looked like we were getting tight on the deadline, I, I brought in the crews for helping with the tile, the drywall, uh, some of the concrete pavers and things like that, which and the paint. So, you know, labor is, is no joke. I mean, it's way more than the material cost of things. So right. it was uh, very quickly adds up. And in the last two weeks, I probably wrote checks for like $40,000 worth of labor. Oh, well, if you think about it, though, so since since the cost went up because you had to kind of rush the labor because it was all squeezed into a shorter timeline, that means that you had more time that you would have otherwise producing other content. So earning money. So that would kind of offset the fact that you spent more rushing it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Except I was also working at the same time that they were. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was. It's just what had to be done. Like I had to get everything done for that timeline with Home Depot, and so sometimes mm-hmm. you have to spend money to to keep your promises and and and, and hit those marks. So uh, it sucked, but uh, you know, at the same time, uh, it was it was definitely worth it because we hit the mark. That's the old saying: you got to spend money to break even. <laughs> Put that on a Classic. t-shirt. You got to spend money <laughs> to be on time. <laughs> Makes sense. All right. Mike, what have you been up to? You're back in Oaktown? Do people call it that? I don't know. I've never heard of anyone calling it Oaktown, <laughs> Start but it. I am Put back it on in Oklahoma. T-shirt. No, a lot has been going on, and a lot will be going on while I'm here. I should be here for the next four, maybe five weeks. Currently, I've been working on a really nice dining table. Randomly, I had uh, someone that follows me on Instagram or YouTube email me asking if I could build a dining table top. I've already finished the table, basically, by the time you're listening, and I will have hopefully delivered it. But I just thought it would be a cool project to kind of pick up for a few days before I get started on the bathroom. It would kind of let me settle in. Let me get a quick project out of the way, get a good win before I tackled this big (laughs) bathroom remodel. Get a good win, right? Get a sweat going. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so that's what I've been working on. It's been pretty fun. If you follow me on Instagram, you got to see the lumber supplier that I go to. I don't know about you guys, but is that not one of the most common questions that you guys either get emailed or DM'd about? Like, where do I get materials? Yeah, and it's always a, a bad answer because it's usually somewhere local. Exactly. My answer is either Home Depot or just Google Lumber Supplier because every town's got to have one. Either yeah, the, either your close. town or the town next to you. But it was really cool to be able to show on my Instagram, which I made a, a highlight on. So if you go to at Modern Builds, you should see that on my profile of just going, looking at the lumber, picking out what I wanted, and then them surfacing it, meaning planing it down to whatever thickness I wanted, mm-hmm. and then putting a straight edge on it so that I had a good edge to reference and work off of that was nice, straight, and square. It was really cool seeing the efficiency of these gigantic machines. What they do a lot of is trim. So they've got these giant molding and shaping machines where you throw a one by 4 or a one by 6 through it, and out the other end comes a piece of crown molding or a piece okay. you know, of baseboard trim or something like that. So they're outfitted with these giant machines that can do all kinds of crazy things. But it came out great. I got some nice white oak. I ran it through this planer that cuts the wood on each side at the same time. Hmm. So you get double the planing power or double the planing speed. And then it goes down this conveyor ba- belt to a machine that puts that straight edge on it. 
and it literally rips this board down in about a second, maybe a second and a half. And it was a 10-foot board. It just fires it right through there? It's just got this uh, power roller that pushes down onto the top of the board, and that feeds it through this saw, I'm assuming, because you can't see the inside of it. It's all enclosed. But it just runs it through this saw. It cuts a straight edge on it, literally about 10 feet a second, I have to imagine. So that was really cool to see. And it was it was really convenient. I had no idea that this lumber supplier did that for people that were just buying a few boards at a time. So going forward, I can now get nice hardwood lumber and I can just call it in. I can call them and say, hey, I need eight, eight quarter, one by six white oak boards. And then I can show up a couple hours later. They'll be planed to the right thickness. They'll have straight edges on both sides. It'll be basically like whenever you're buying lumber at Home Depot, it's already the right size, it's already squared mm-hmm. off and ready to use. Really cool. So, pretty cool resource. I'm glad I found out about it. And uh, what about you, Chris? Yeah. Before we kind of go on to talking more about what I'm doing, tell me about your lumber supplier. Is it similar or is it somewhere kind of in between a smaller supplier and, and a big one? I'd say it's in between. So, I mean, I, I go to a few different ones, but the one that I go to the most is definitely smaller than what you're talking about. They don't have, like, the I think the only equipment that they have in there is a, uh, like, a radial arm saw to just cross-cut it and then a panel saw for cutting down plywood. But they're not, like, doing any milling of the lumber actually in the store. So it's kind of yeah. what, you, what you see is what you're getting. Do you oftentimes have the option to either buy the rough sawn lumber or boards with straight edges? Where do you where in the the supply chain is it? So that one, it's going to be surfaced on one side and one edge. Oh, um, okay, cool. And like not perfect, but good enough that like you can just like throw it over the joiner real quick, and then you have a really clean edge to to start working with. Um, but there are some other places around here, and most of them. So like. Okay, the one that you went to, could you like actually go in and like go through boards or you just say, I want this and then they go get it for you? Totally. Yeah. They've basically got, you know, the pallets that the lumber comes in at Home Depot where it's just a giant forklift pallet. They've got, Mm -hmm. they've got them bundled up similarly and you can just pick through them and pick what you want as well. Okay. See, there's some places around me that are more similar to that, that I want to check out and they're, they're actually a little bit cheaper. But it's where you just say, I want this, and then you like pick it up out of will call window or whatever. You don't actually go through and, and grab stuff. I don't know about you, but if I'm building furniture and I'm only buying a few boards, I feel like I definitely want to pick what boards I'm using. Yeah, yeah. You want them to like match and everything. Totally. I really like that that thick, the dimensions you got on that white oak. That's, that's some, some pretty beefy uh, pieces. Yeah, this is going to be a really heavy tabletop, but it was a good example of prepping the boards before the glue up and that really paying off so especially me and you ben you know we don't have a joiner we use a table saw sometimes and so i wanted to make this dining table comparable to i don't know like a commission quality table but i wanted to only use a circular saw and drills and a sander i wanted it to be kind of a high quality finish off of just three simple tools nice and so i really took the time to set up my circular saw so i knew that blade was as square as i could possibly get it i got a really kind of cool straight edge that empire makes that's made as a cutting guide i just saw it at home depot this week for the first time it's made specifically in mind to use with a circular saw got my circular saw really plumb got all these boards straight clean ready to go, threw the dowels in, making sure that they were good, square, ready to go. 
But whenever I glued everything up, it just went together so smooth. It probably ended up taking maybe an extra hour, but there was absolutely no complications along the way. All the dowels fit perfectly. The boards went together so square. I made call boards so I could clamp all my boards together and sandwich them and make sure everything stayed flat, but I really didn't even need them. I was able to clamp everything up only using the Maker brand starter clamp set. Well, there you go. Which is two T-bar clamps, four 12-inch F-clamps, and four 24-inch F-clamps. So what I'm hearing is it had very little to do with the saw setup and mostly to do with those clamps. It was equal parts Maker brand and... (laughs) preparation (laughs) but it was cool i mean i i clamped this eight foot long three foot wide table and i didn't even use all of the clamps in the set i still had two of the 12 inch and two of the 24 inch ones left over so that was really cool to see it was really rewarding there's going to be some prefab metal legs that are going on the bottom of it so it should be a simple 500 hundred dollar table that i don't know would probably commission for around 2000 2500 so i think i'm going to throw a title on there like Building a $2,500 table for under 500 or some kind of clickbait title like that. I think it'll be fun. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, like, hey, what you were saying with the whole subscriber numbers maybe not determining views, I'm going to throw the clickbait title out there, see how it works. You got to do what you can. We're all out here trying to get views, man. Clickbait. <laughs> but yeah, I, it opened my eyes to White Oak. I had used Red Oak yeah. quite a bit recently, and I'm a really, really big fan of it. And I'm not going to say it. Well, you know what? I will say it. Get it. Do it. Get it, it, Mike. I like white oak a little bit more. Sounds It's just got a little bit more brown tone than red. But currently, I am all about oak. It is going to be the wave for the next five years. I guarantee it. Maple is out. Oak (laughs) is in. Yeah. See, you are living in oak town. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, I... I prefer it too, especially if I'm, I've also, when I've tried to ebonize wood using the vinegar and steel wood, wool method, uh, I've always had better results with Ah, white oak. I forget, is vinegar when it, okay, that's when, yeah, it turns black. It does, yeah. Okay. But aside from that. Bleaching would be the other one. I'm just prepping to get ready for this bathroom remodel, which I'll be starting next week. And then after that, my same buddy, Caleb, that I'm remodeling the bathroom for is opening a clothing store downtown in Oklahoma City. He just signed the lease last week, so I'll be building a couple pieces in there, taking a little bit of inspiration from Ben's great store build. It won't any it, it's not going to look anything like it, but I'm doing a store. So that's pretty <laughs> so, interesting. Therefore taking inspiration. Exactly. It's interesting too because so so many people in our space do a lot of domestic items, furniture and stuff for homes. But there's a lot more commissions out there, I think, for commercial properties or businesses, restaurants, stores, you know, boutiques, hotels, coffee coffee shops, all those things. So for makers out there that are actually commission based, it's I find it is much easier to get paid for a commission from an actual business than it is finding those, you know, super wealthy individuals that uh, are looking just something nice for their home. I'd have to imagine, and I would think that the margins have to be quite a bit higher as well, because if you're opening a store, you're already kind of expecting to throw out quite a bit of money for the build-out usually. So it's kind of this well expectation versus reality is probably a little bit closer than like fine furniture kind of commissions. Yeah, and I would think that the clients would actually be probably a little bit less wishy-washy because you figure if it's, okay, I want this custom coffee table. Well, the alternative is you can just go to the store and buy a coffee table that's pretty similar probably. Mm -hmm. 
if you have a store, first off, you're looking at, at it as like, well, this could help me make more money. So you might see it as more of an investment rather than just like a luxury of something that you want. Uh, and then there's also going to be more need to be customized than with stuff that's just going in your house. It could be like, I need this specific thing to fit in this exact space and display these objects or whatever. So I would think that it's kind of more set in. Like once they contact you, you probably have a better chance of actually closing that deal. Agreed. Yeah, I would think so. And not to mention just the cost of a lot of the kind of things that go into a store build out. If you were to buy them off the shelf are way higher as well. For instance, you know, those, I guess what I would call them are very rectangular prism like pedestals or kind of podiums that a lot of times people will use in their store displays. They're essentially just giant building block looking things. Yeah. Well, whenever we were going over ideas for what we could be using in the store, that was one thing I threw out was saying, well, what if we just build maybe a dozen or 16 of those cool kind of just blocks that you set merchandise on? They're all different heights, so you can kind of cluster them together, or you can spread them out and let them kind of be symmetrical with the ones that are the same height and kind of make this stair-stepping kind of look. And his initial response was, I looked into those, definitely not doing them because they're way too expensive. And I looked... And just one of these boxes at one of the more popular suppliers was about $500 a piece. And it's literally just a cube, essentially. Uh And so that's one way that as someone that knows how to build simple things, that's a really simple geometry that apparently has a really high ticket price. And so what I'm going to be able to do is build these boxes out of MDF, bondo all the corners really well so it's just this perfectly seamless cube or rectangular prism paint them up and they're going to look just as good as what you would buy off of mm-hmm. off the shelf and it's going to be the cost of a sheet of mdf rather than 500 bucks now when you when you buy those things off the shelf what do you think they display them on oh bigger podiums obviously <laughs> St- <laughs> this is the podium for the yeah. podium podium shop yeah oh whoa, whoa, whoa don't stack that podium on there that's a sale podium not a podium for sale <laughs> I like this. We got a skit going here. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of art galleries that use similar things and I was at one where they actually made them like nesting dolls. So they had a whole series so they could store them in the back and rearrange for different store displays and stuff like that. But yeah, it's surprising what really basic sturdy things cost. Damn straight. That's right. So Chris, what's happening in your yes. neck of the woods? Oh, man. Yeah, how's the garage demo coming? Uh, so I had to kind of put it on hold to start building some actual projects again. So right now I'm in the middle of a project with the garage partway renovated, I would say. <laughs> um, so I, I, I demoed the whole back wall. I got the um, vertical plywood storage up, which it's that's already like storing. It's cleaned up that corner quite a bit. So that's I can already tell that's going to be super useful. I also ended up um, doing the sheathing of the back wall in plywood. And so I did it kind of like a geometric pattern, but I haven't hung anything from it yet. And I'm actually thinking that when I put the video out, I'm probably going to do it without, or at least mostly without having hung stuff from it, because I think that would be a good chance to kind of get some input on what are some best ways to use that wall. So actually, even now, I guess I can just kind of throw it out there to the audience. If you have any really innovative or unique things that you've seen people 
do with basically just a flat wall where you can screw anything to it. French cleats. Nah, I don't want to do French cleats. I know. I was just echoing along with everyone else oh, okay. in your messages. I call them freedom cleats, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> freedom <laughs> cleats. <laughs> but uh, well, let's let's go through it. Like, what are the options? Are like French cleats, pegboard. Uh, there's slat walls, which are basically a variation of French cleats. I'll tell you what you don't want is pegboard. I'm doing pegboard. Pegboard is the worst. <laughs> They're always falling out whenever you're unhooking things. Like if you have a saw hanging from a pegboard, oh, you catch the it, pegs coming pull with it up. It. Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends. Yeah, it's a nightmare. What I'm thinking is instead of doing one thing that's the whole wall, is just doing a variety of different things. So maybe doing like a little pegboard area to display certain things. I kind of want it to be, since it's essentially the background of all of the videos in the garage, I want it to look nice. So I don't want to like over utilitarianize it or I don't know, whatever word that would be, not utilize, but I don't want to make it overly just functional. I want it to be functional, but still probably a little bit more sparse than what you would normally do to make it not too busy too, right? Yeah, not too busy and kind of like a a nice looking background and, you know, maybe an opportunity to kind of display some of the maker brand stuff or one of the other things. So I I haven't talked about on here yet is I have a long term sponsorship with a tool company now, Hikoki. So that's going to all be Mm. coming out soon. I mean, I start I've started receiving the tools, started using the tools. So you're going to start seeing them appear in my videos in the next couple of weeks. Um and, and there's still more to come, but I figure that can be, you know, kind of use it as a dual purpose of a production need, but also uh, a um, like production in terms of making furniture, but also in terms of business reasons for running a YouTube channel, you know, wanting something that looks nice aesthetically and to kind of like, you know, help out sponsors and stuff. The yeah. In general, I think the, the modular ideas like French cleats or slat walls or pegboard People get really excited about them because they're like, oh, you can move the things around. You can set up all these different combinations. In my experience, people very rarely do that. They set it up once and then they kind of just keep it the same way. So what I tend to think is makes the most sense is actually just plywood that you can screw things to. Yeah. One of the things I really like about the tiny house is we had to use plywood underneath the gypsum board for to meet the structural standards. And what's awesome about that is it makes it really easy to hang stuff anywhere you want. Mm-hmm. Don't need to look for you know the, the stud. No stud finder. That's amazing. All yeah. stud. It might just be even that simple, just picking the right substrate that, that can do it. And then if you eventually put too many holes, doing it at doing the plywood panels at a way that they can eventually be replaced. Yeah, exactly. If if one gets too sort of beat up or you know you, you move things around too much. So it might actually just be something like that to keep it clean so you don't have as many shadow lines and right. also with French cleats the thing I I've, I've never liked about them is just another place for like dust, dust and all yeah. that stuff to to settle. You can't sort of you, know, you have to vacuum out the little little nooks and stuff. And it's also funny to me when people put them all the way to the floor. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's like you're not really moving shelves around down down that low. So it could just be something where it's just a really nice plywood wall with maybe like two or three horizontal stripes of like a French cleat type system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whenever you brought that up, that was kind of what I was thinking too. Is 
how often are you really changing out tools for new tools when it comes to the things on the wall? It's mostly kind of the marking, measuring stuff a lot of times, or the hand tools right. that once you have the one you like, you don't want to get rid of it because it works well for you. So that's where I, I really like when people do the plywood walls and then cut little wood pieces so that whatever the tool is, it's kind of custom fit for that tool. So if it's a pole saw and it's got a certain geometry, you kind of make a wooden negative that that fits into. Yeah. It's like little custom holders. I think that looks little really jello cool. Molds. Yeah, it'll be a pretty neat video backdrop. It'll look super custom. And from what I've heard from the people that have made them, they're relatively quick compared to a f- French cleat system. You're doing the French cleat rails, and then you're making custom little baskets and holders that everything fits into that then hooks onto the French cleat. But if you could just make the holders, screw them onto the wall, you're sort of doing the same thing, except you don't have those cleats running along the full length, taking away a lot of visual space and kind of just making it have to fit into these lines rather than being able to jigsaw all into each other and be kind of nesting. Right. Actually, you just gave me an idea. I don't know if this would work or not. Maybe I'll test this out out of like some foam or something. But if you just like took a picture straight on of a tool and then took it into like Illustrator and did image trace. So you created a vector of it and then just expanded a little bit and had it carve it out, like make wow. the CNC custom carve out little shapes. And then you could make a couple little notches. So you got like finger holds. <laughs> yeah, so you could just it. reach in there and grab it. It would be good. You'd have to make sure you're taking perfectly straight down photos. Yeah, perfectly to the size of my hand. There you go. Project one is an overhead camera rig. I've wanted to do one for a long time. You might as well do it. And then step two and three follow. I actually did that with a laser cutter before where I wanted to make a camera case for one of our video cameras. I just laid out all the pieces, took a photo, took it into Illustrator, did a live trace, and then exported that for uh, laser cutting out of corrugated cardboard to make like a like a Pelican case for it. That's where I got the idea then. <laughs> got it from Ben. Subconscious. No, but um, so yeah, I guess if anybody has any ideas. So basically right now I've already made the decision that it's already sheathed in plywood. So now it's more a matter of like what kinds of things should I put on that wall? Right. You know, you see a lot of like drill stations and those kinds of things, which makes sense. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's anything unique or, or you have any good ideas, just... Send me a DM on Instagram. We'll cool. We'll hash it out. My one last bit of input would maybe yep. be if it's three or four pieces of plywood, I'm not sure how long that wall is. Maybe mm-hmm. each plywood is designated for a certain thing. Ah. So you've got the one piece of plywood that's all the sort of like the high cokey wall, right? It's all the power tools. Right. As you get maybe a new track saw or maybe a new jigsaw, you have a spot for it because that one piece of plywood has plenty of space. The other thing you could do, just go into an isolation tank. Like a float tank. I did that for the first time this week. You mean like sensory deprivation? Yeah, I did one. I got a lot of <laughs> ideas for chairs. I went in there. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I went in there after I booked it and I was like, I'm going to think about chair ideas. And I sat there in the pitch black for an hour and I came up with a couple ideas. Nice. Where did you do this? In, in Oklahoma? Oaktown, yeah. Yeah, back in Oaktown, there's quite a few <laughs> places. You can float around back in Oaktown quite a bit. <laughs> it's the slogan. I imagine like the Oklahoma version is just like in the bed of a pickup truck with like an inner tube and like put a, a blanket over you. I was about to say, you blindfold. know when people put the tarp in the bed of the truck, it's basically yeah. one of those, but it's got a bed cover instead. And it's got a camper shell. Yeah, <laughs> just floating down to Oaktown, brother. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, so what are we talking about this week? Chris, you've got the topic for us, correct? 
Uh, yeah, let's see. Somebody, I know we've already gone really long, so everyday up cycles. He says, I enjoy listening to the podcast and was wondering if you guys could talk about the process of going from product design to manufacturing and distribution. Thanks. Well, that's something. Can you guys talk about that? At least for me, that's something pretty new. Outside of Maker Brand, do you guys have experience? I mean, Ben, I know you've been involved with the Kiwi. Yeah. But have, do you guys have other experience than Maker Brand, just so that we're not just talking about that? I've done it with a few things. Um, the U by 4 was a good example. That's something where I designed oh, yeah. it, went through prototyping, tested prototypes, and then did a Kickstarter campaign that then resulted in a in a retail product. And then... That was the thing that I sort of designed and, and made. Um, I've been involved a lot with uh, as a design consultant with a lot of people that had product ideas, and I helped with the prototyping. And then also as an investor with Maker Brand and also the Ergo Kiwi. And then another uh, company called Hearth, which is trying to make heated furniture. So I would say there's a lot of different experiences, and with each one of those experiences, the, pro- the process is different. And it's different not because design is so different, but it's because the business needs of design is is hugely different. And I would say it's like, huh, here's the food analogy, right? Yeah. <laughs> here we go. Think Order's of a up. steak. Here we go. Right. The way you would conceive of a menu <laughs> for a new restaurant that you're opening is totally different depending on the price point and how you're conceiving of the restaurant. If you're thinking of something that's, uh, you know, going to be like, you know, it's kind of like a sports bar. <laughs> um, your menu's probably going to be a little more simple. And it's just really about providing the right options that would result in efficient sourcing. If you're trying to do like sort of high-end cuisine, then, you know, you really got to figure out what your identity is and how you make a name for yourself. So the process with creating a completely new tool like the, the Ergo Kiwi is takes a lot longer than sort of uh, I think for some of the stuff that we've done so far with Maker Brand, where it's probably um, part design, part curation, we know that we we know what these tools are before we set out. You know, we know what clamps were. We didn't invent the yeah. F style clamp, but right. we knew what would make it best suited for the way we use them. Right. So with the Ergo Kiwi, it was really about you know Sean, who founded it, made about a hundred different prototypes over the course of a year to really test out the shape. So it's it's really the slow iterative process to try to find the right shape for the handle. With Maker Brand, it was much more we listed our pet peeves and also the features that we really enjoy in clamps. And it was about sort of curating what is ideal for us for our specific needs. So they're both design type processes, but one's more of an editing and one is more of pure creation. With the... The U by four, which is the bracket that turns a two by four into a table leg, it really just started from identifying the problem with some hairpin legs, which is that they're they're great, but they're expensive to ship. And you know, it's nice to have metal at the point of connection between a tabletop and legs, but do you really need it for the whole length of the leg itself? So it started with an observation and then it was just what would be a quick and easy way to to manufacture something from there? And it was just picking an angle and then looking how it would be made out of sheet metal, ordering prototypes, testing the prototypes, um, comparing the price of the different prototypes. Because at first we sort of went too heavy duty with the design, which made them expensive and heavy. 
and then we realize that oh we don't actually need as much reinforcement as we think so it's with with everything it's i would say the most universal or or common part related to all of them is the iterative process and the iterative uh, process the success of it hinges on your ability to know what parameters you're looking for you don't want things to just be subjective where you look at it and you're like, I like this or I don't like this. You want to know why you like it. You want to know what your expectations are for every prototype you get back from the manufacturer. So there's there's so many options today. It's a, it's a great time to be trying to do this stuff. There's a ton of international manufacturing options. There's a ton of domestic manufacturing options. And it's, what's interesting to me is how often people think they know what they're talking about, about when they say, oh, made in China, that means this. People don't know what they're talking about unless you actually do the research. And if you do the research in one category, that doesn't necessarily apply to another. I just got an update from uh, Jaco from the Maker Knife, which was an incredibly yep. successful Kickstarter campaign to make a really awesome knife. And they ran into some troubles with some of the sourcing. And one of the companies that was, a, I think, either a European or, or American company just backed out of the deal and kind of lied to them a little bit, saying that they had started, but they didn't really start. Wow. But they found a Chinese company that could make it way more precisely. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 and it's funny when I hear people sort of say, oh, I saw this this video, I think it was like one of the guys from Duck Dynasty talking about how Chinese products are crap. And it was funny because I was watching it on an iPhone, <laughs> right? And I'm pretty sure that if you gave him the whole dynasty of duckheads, uh, or whatever they are. <laughs> the dynasty of duckheads. <laughs> <laughs> whatever those ducky people are. You could give them all the time in the world. You could, I bet you you could give them 10,000 years and those guys couldn't make an iPhone uh, that's made in China right now. It, w- what was kind of sad about it is that they were mistaking sort of volume and intentional cost efficiency with the inability to make quality. Yeah. China can make incredibly precise stuff. The, iPhone is a, the tolerances on iPhones and Mac computers are pretty insane. But if they're being commissioned to do things that are market rate by American companies, they're going to do an efficient thing to hit exactly what they've been asked to do. Yeah. So I think, you know, manufacturing is a really interesting topic. Uh, There's no singular answers. It's different for static tools than it is for mechanical tools and different for electrical tools. But whatever it is, it benefits from knowing what your measurables are so you can communicate them both to the manufacturer and then you can have your team sort of check them when you get the results back, right? So let's say for a clamp, you say that, oh, this clamp is 40 inches long and nothing is perfectly straight. But you don't want to say these clamps are not straight. You want to have a standard of saying that, oh, we will accept uh, one eighth of a of an inch variance over this many inches, but we won't accept anything less than that. So that those kind of standards and metrics are really important. So you're not just saying this is terrible or this is great, but as a way of sort of you know having a, a measurable, definable uh, uh, standard for quality that all parties, fulfillment, uh, manufacturing, and the sort of brand itself can all agree on. 
Yeah. I would say the closest that I have experience with it is probably the whole furniture thing that we tried to do a couple months ago that uh, failed. And thinking back on it, it's funny. So the designs, I don't know if compromised is the right word, were changed. You know, we had to change them to make them fit the cost. But it wasn't actually the cost of producing the furniture that that determined why we had to change it. It was the shipping. Mm. So there's these, there's basically these break points that you'll hit where once you get over this size, it's going to cost way more to ship. And if you're trying to hit, if you have a, a specific audience in mind that's going to spend this much on furniture, well, then you can't be spending $500 to ship something. You have to be spending $200 to ship it. Or it just like gets crazy the percentage that you're, the, the total cost is just shipping. And also, so you fact basically you factor that in or you combine that with the fact that the furniture still has to be functional. So you can't say, well, I'm going to keep it the same looking aesthetically by just scaling everything because now it becomes like miniature furniture that would, you know, be in like a, a kid's room or something like mm-hmm. that. So, I mean, those are, the, I think that's the closest, ex- closest experience I have with it. And before that, I would have never thought about that. Like I, I would have, I would have known that price was going to dictate the way that things were going to be designed, but I would have thought that it had a lot more to do with the building of the piece and material costs and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, sort of how it was put together and the materials more than the geometry right. specifically. Yeah. yeah, shipping would have been an after, uh, more of an afterthought to me, but that was like the huge factor in determining what the furniture ended up looking like in that case. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, something that's been interesting to me is I always thought, Ben, you mentioned it not too long ago, the idea of consulting a brand, you know, if if they're interested in creating a product in a specific space that you know a lot about, you add value as a consultant. And that was something that I always thought was a little silly most of my life because, you know, just figured out yourself mostly is the way I tend to think. But I've kind of taken a little bit of the lead on developing maker brand apparel, which is in progress right now not to give too much away. But it's been an interesting experience because apparel is something, you know, I really don't know anything about and it's a whole nother world from tools and woodworking accessories. And so we're working with sort of a consultant helping us source some of the fire resistant material that we're looking for and some of the other kind of patterns and things that we need made to be able to make this workwear that we want to create, not giving away too many spoilers, I don't think. But Spoiler it's alert. been a big eye-opener showing, yes, I could have figured out where to get this flame-resistant material to make some sort of apparel, wink, wink, I'm not going to say what, but he was able to do it so quickly, he was able to get us the Fanny pricing, packs. and the <laughs> he was able Suits to get for us- for stuntmen. Yeah. Instead of me working through five different middlemen, I was able to work through this one who was able to kind of of able to consolidate a lot of the legwork I would have had to have done over six months into, you know, maybe one month. And so that's been something interesting I've sort of turned my viewpoint on is admitting where, you know, yes, I could figure this out, but this person pretty much already has it figured out. And what he's wanting to charge me for that is totally totally reasonable and it makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I think consultants get a bad rap, but I don't think it's necessarily because it's a bad idea. I think people often use them wastefully, 
And right. it, mm-hmm. I think the assumption is that a consultant is someone there that you're paying for advice. <laughs> but what you really want to pay them for is a map to get to your yeah. destination faster and more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And a consultant is fantastic where you can bring them in for two hours. And even if you're paying them a ridiculous amount of money, like hundreds of dollars an hour, but if they in two hours can save you 30 hours, and not just 30 hours of time, but 30 hours that might result in a conclusion that you're not 100% certain about because you <laughs> so don't, haven't tried yeah. them all. So if they can provide a higher degree of certainty that allows you to invest capital with more confidence in the shorter amount of time, it's excellent. But what's terrible is when you just bring in a consultant and you go, hey, what do you think about this? And you ask them an open-ended question. When you work with a consultant, it's fantastic when you sort of know exactly what your questions are and also what your sort of goals are so that they can help provide a map and not just advice. Yeah, and I'm sure there's – it goes on both ends of the spectrum. I'm sure you've got consultants out there that are good at sort of kind of picking your brain and figuring out, you know, maybe you're the client that doesn't have the right questions. Maybe they're able to kind of bring that out of you and really be as valuable as possible. And I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that are – just happy to give you the thumbs up and tell you you're doing great. It's the same thing as manufacturing, you know. There's good manufacturers, bad manufacturers. I'm sure it's the same way with consultants. Yeah. Well, I got to say, Mike, I'm proud of you because it takes a big man to admit that he needs a middleman. <laughs> but you did it. Man in, oh, wait. I was about to say man in the mirror. <laughs> man in the middle. You break into some, <laughs> little some, MJ. some Michael Jackson. <laughs> Anyways. Awesome. Well, what are you guys obsessed with this week? I think this was pretty interesting. And if... This is a, If this is a topic that the listeners are interested in, I know we've got a pretty heavy woodworking audience, but I also know there's a lot of design students, architecture students, people in the industry as well. If this is something that interests you guys, let us know because I would love to discuss these sort of things more, especially the more we're diving into it and the more we're able to kind of share our experiences, anecdotal or a little more concrete. Either way, it's, it's, it's really fun for us. So let us know. Yep, yep. What Chris, are you guys obsessed with? Yeah. I'll tell you what I'm obsessed with. And it, it. it should be what you're obsessed with, but I just don't know if you've seen it yet because it just Uh-oh. got posted. Rockler Plywood Challenge alumni, PC Makes, just built a variation yeah. of your simple wall organizer, and it looks awesome. Oh, yeah. I just saw oh, that. I haven't seen it. He didn't, I was just talking to him the other day. He didn't even tell me. Oh, man. Well, that's crazy. You <laughs> should uh, You should check it out while I describe it. It's okay. very cool. He did a great job of mixing in a little bit of color with natural wood tone, and it just looks really awesome. I don't know if he used paint or if he stained the wood different colors and masked it all off. I can't, I can't quite tell from the photos, but whatever he did, it looks really awesome. So shout out to Patrick Clancy. He is PC underscore makes on Instagram. He is the guy that oh, built... Oh, wow. Yeah, Sorry, he is the I guy that built the paddle boards for the Rockler Plywood Challenge. So you'll probably be familiar with him. Sorry, you go, Ben. I'm, I'm looking at this now. Okay, so for mine, it is... Hang on, say that one more time, Ben. For mine, it is going to be a store. And it's a store that I'm a sponsor with, so you know, maybe this is a shameless plug. But the... So Home Depot's mine. And what I'm really uh, excited about as this tiny house all comes together is in my architecture background, I've done a lot of high-end houses where you're using tile from a place like Ann Sachs that might be like $20 a square foot. And you're you're just using all these expensive things like a $2,000 dishwasher and you're, you're making homes that cost millions of dollars. 
and Home Depot is a pretty affordable level of, or has a pretty affordable level of interior finishes. And what I've done in sort of designed this house is really trying to pick the things that I think offer the most value at at the right price points, and then trying to elevate them and present them in a way that looks really cool, so that it looks super high end, but is very financially attainable. And with the tile, I think I've I, I've done that. I think I've really uh, got, uh, uh, sort of nailed that part. And because stone is stone, right? Like you, you know, if if you're it, 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 once you're past the linoleum kind of level, uh, right? Once you've the quality kind of stays consistent, right? So it's not like a, the stone at Ann Sachs is higher quality stone than the stone at Home Depot. Mm-hmm. It's more that they just have different more contemporary and stylish options but if you can if you have a good eye you can kind of curate and pick and and mix and match the right materials and finishes you can pay a quarter of the price but still get something that looks good and uh i also think because you're using materials that maybe cost a little bit less you can be a little bit more adventurous with them so you know, for me, that was sort of experimenting with doing the combination of how the the hexagon floor tile meets the the oak flooring, but then also with the backsplash. So I did a a sort of a mountain range backsplash of two inch stone tile that I'm very pleased with how it looks, and it was a really simple detail. It's a very affordable detail, but the immediate reaction I got was from a lot of my former architecture clients saying that they loved it, and these are people that we built million dollar houses for and they like something that's you know for a house that's going to cost you know maybe around 180 to 200 thousand dollars total so shout out to home depot it may take some time to sort of filter through because they have so many options but you can make really beautiful high-end looking home environments with the the stuff off the shelf there totally it's the idea of instead of outsourcing creativity from a retail store like whatever the ones you were talking about it's just like taking the create the creative aspect yourself and doing that yeah totally so chris what's your uh obsession this week so first i will before i get into my obsession because i know there's a bunch of people that have been waiting to hear what today's national day was since we did a different intro sorry we got cut off by maker news yeah it is national pepperoni pizza day oh yeah i guess guess what i had for lunch as it would turn out today Italian pizza. Salad. Oh, wow. Close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is Italian pizza anyways? I don't know why I said that. It's I was going to say Italian sausage pizza. It's like wooden trees. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but for my obsession. So I had already mentioned I've been starting to get in the Haikoki tools. Yes. Um, got the first, I think I've gotten like seven of them so far. So I've been messing around with those. But one of them that came in, which... I guess isn't really technically a tool, but it's something you would keep in your garage, which is a, a battery-operated, so a cordless blower, which I, I never had had one of those before. And I got yeah, fake grass amazing. in my house, which gets leaves all over it. This thing is awesome, man. I've been all over the place just... I don't want to say what I was about to say, but <laughs> <laughs> using it everywhere. <laughs> You're that um, neighbor so think, that's always got the blower running now. Yeah. I think it's, it's the third in my line of me just. Dis- Things that are readily available out there that I'm late to discover. So there was the impact drivers, then there's hot glue guns, and now this is this is the third of those, which is cordless blower. That's pretty Get awesome. One. 
even just for cleaning out the shop, I mean, oh, yeah. I make a lot of dust. And so just being able to get the 80% of it with the with the blower and then maybe sweeping a little bit here and there to clean up the corners, dude, it's a yeah. game changer. You know what else is awesome? Because it has like five different power levels. So I actually start with it on the lowest power level and like do all the stuff that's up high so I don't blow it all down. I just like blow the dust that's collected off of it. Then I get it full strength and I do the ground. And then I was like, I've gotten this far. I'm just going to keep going. I worked my way out to the driveway, worked my way onto the lawn. Before I knew it, I was in Vegas. (laughs) Chris is going to start the light. He's going to be on Angie's list soon. (laughs) Being a shop cleaner. I'll blow out your shop. (laughs) Variable Five speeds. Bucks. That's I'm your, on like, Fiverr. On the description, variable speeds limits uh, limits overkill. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, thanks guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This one was a fun one. If you haven't already, give us a five star review on the iTunes app. Just find us, search us, review us. Thank you in advance. On Instagram, we are at Modern Builds, at Four Eyes Furniture, at Benjamin Ueda, and collectively, we are at Modern Maker Podcast. If you want to find out more about Maker Brand, if you want to find our clamps, if you want to find our finishes for wood, they're incredibly simple. In fact, they're called Simple Finish. You can go to mm-hmm. makerbrandco.com. Once again, makerbrandco.com. Link is in the description of this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Modern Maker Podcast. Bye, everyone. See ya. Bye.